The woman caught in adultery is one of the most well-known passages in the Bible. It is so popular that verse 7 has entered the popular vocabulary. He that is without sin cast the first stone. But this passage is especially precious to the believer because it presents such a vivid and real picture of Jesus Christ graciously forgiving a woman full of shameful and guilty sin. For this reason, I want to expound this passage through a particular lens. The lens of a case of conscience. Some Christians are haunted by particular sins of the past or particularly sinful lifestyles that even though they have genuinely repented from their sins, live and walk a consistent Christian life and are faithful in spiritual duties, yet they struggle to find peace of conscience and struggle to find consistent assurance. And I have somewhat of this experience myself. I do generally have peace in my conscience and I do generally have assurance of salvation, yet there are certain seasons of my life where due to past sins and a past sinful lifestyle, they come to me with such force that I doubt my own salvation and my own calling. I have been awakened in the middle of a night many times in my life with thoughts and despair that I'm a pretender and a faker because of the past sins and lifestyle. And in such seasons, I need spiritual counselling by the Word and Holy Spirit to restore me to peace of conscience and assurance of salvation. And so I want to use the historical passage before us as an illustration, a lens through which we can be spiritually counseled to peace and assurance. And we can do so because of the experience of this woman. She's mentioned five times in verse 3. 4, 9, and 10. But her name, her biography, her background are omitted. Let us just say it is not Mary Magdalene. You remember from our series how since uh, Pope Gregory the Great 
preached a sermon in the 600s AD and said that uh, this woman caught in adultery was Mary Magdalene. And since there, through art and teaching and tradition, people to this day believe this is Mary Magdalene. This is not Mary Magdalene. Because in chapter 19 and 20 of John, Mary Magdalene is specifically named. And this woman, whoever she is, is not Mary Magdalene. But whoever this woman is, we can all identify with her. I am this woman. You are this woman. And we can identify with her because she is a grievous sinner. And what a sin she's committed, verse 3. She's a woman taken in adultery. This is literal. This is physical. This is the willful sexual intercourse between a married person and someone else who is not the spouse. This is the shame and guilt of a woman in sexual immorality. Most commentators do argue that she is that spouse having relations with someone who is not her husband they say so because of the use of the word woman, can be translated wife or woman, but with the language of adultery, it is most probable to suggest she is the wife. Whether that's true or not, or she's single, but she's having relations with a married man, we don't know 100%, but at the very least we know this, she's committing adultery. And adultery in the Bible comes of all of God's condemnation. Because her sin is not against the potential spouse of the one she's had an affair with, as they say. But it's against God. You remember when David committed adultery. And in his psalm of confession, Psalm 51, what does he say? Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. He's not saying I've not sinned against Bathsheba or her her husband Uriah. This is not to deny his conviction towards that. But he is saying when I truly look at my sin, it is against you, O God, have I done this evil. That's adultery. Evil. And it's evil because it's against the law of God. Exodus 20, thou shalt not commit adultery. And as our sister pointed out in the Sabbath school, when David uh, was um, confronted with this sin by Nathan in 2 Samuel 12, 9 to 10, you saw those parallel accounts. In the act, it is hatred towards God. For in the adultery, David, it says, despised God's commandments. And the next verse, David despised God. 
Not every sin in the Old Testament was punishable by death. But God decreed that certain sins were punishable by death so that we would know how sinful and evil this sin is. And as we see from verse 5, and we'll come to later, adultery was punishable by death. God wanted us all to know how cursed and wicked adultery is. And adultery totally defiles the parties. Hebrews 13, 4 Marriage is honourable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. The marriage is to be clean and pure and undefiled, but when adultery takes place, there's defilement and uncleanness. And when God picks particular sins, he wants us to know which are hell-deserving. In Revelation chapter 21 verse 8, he includes the sin which is translated in the authorised version, whoremongers. It's just a word for any form of sexual immorality, including adultery. So whoremongers, sexual immorality, adultery shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. This is this woman's scandalous sin. And in verse 4 it tells us she was caught in the very act. Think of the public knowledge. Think of the reputation. Think of the scandal. And this is me. And this is you. This is our sinfulness. Our sins are against God. Our sins are against his law. Our sins are worthy of death. The wages of sin is death. Our sin makes us unclean and defiled and polluted and all of our sins are worthy of fire and brimstone in hell. And now brother and sister with this case of conscience you're struggling and you're wrestling with the shame and guilt of a past sin in particular or a past sinful lifestyle. And you've repented of your sins and you're walking in the faith and you, you're, you're faithful in spiritual duties, but yet you still cannot get rid of that shame. You can't unburden yourself of that guilt. And you feel all the things we have said thus far and it's weighing heavy, heavy, heavy on your conscience. How can this woman receive peace of conscience and assurance of salvation? How can I, how can you receive peace of conscience and assurance of salvation? Well, much of this passage tells us where she cannot find it. And if you read much of this passage, there's one word that's pressing here. Law. Law. 
this woman cannot and never will find peace of conscience and assurance of salvation through law. And neither will I and nor will you. First of all, see the law in the legalism of the scribes and Pharisees. Oh, how they're men of law. The scribes are the experts and the teachers of the law. The Pharisees, meaning literally the separate ones who uphold the stringency of the law. And they find this woman in the very act of her wicked, guilty, shameful sin. And they take her. And it says that she was set before them. Set means to stand in the midst. Put her on trial. You can imagine the picture. This woman has been committing this sin. She's been discovered. They grab her. They come to the temple. There's thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people all around them. Chapter 7 tells us it's a public feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. And these scribes and Pharisees set her in the midst and stand, you've committed adultery. All eyes are on her. Every gaze, every look is piercing straight to her conscience. And she's filled with her shame and guilt. And these scribes and Pharisees, they come to her with the law. And you remember the attitude of the Pharisees when it concerns the law. You remember Luke chapter 18 where it says, Jesus spake a parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. And then he is a publican, he is a tax collector, he is a sinner, and they despise them. And that's what the law does. It despises sin. But the Pharisees and scribes will also show no mercy in their legalism. You remember the time when Jesus Christ wonderfully came and said to Matthew or Levi, Come, follow me. And he followed him. And in Matthew chapter 9, uh, Matthew has invited all manner of sinners and shameful publicans. And they're all sitting eating with Jesus Christ. And the scribes and Pharisees are not happy whatsoever. It says in Matthew 9.12, they come to him and rebuke him and the disciples. Why is your master eating with publicans and sinners? And Christ says, go and learn this meaning. I have mercy. Because the scribes and Pharisees show no mercy towards sinners. And neither does the law. The law will not show mercy to anyone who even has a very teeny tiny spot 
of sin, never mind a great shameful sin like this. And yet, Christians, we are very confusing creatures at times. Think about what we know. We know that peace and forgiveness and assurance can only come from Christ and not law. We know, John 14, 27, Christ says, My peace I give unto you. It's Christ's peace. We know we can only receive that through justification by faith alone without the works of the law. So that Romans 5.1 says, therefore being justified by faith, no works, no law, we have peace with God. And we know Acts 13.39 which says, by him all that believe are justified from all things, all sins, all iniquities, all transgressions, adultery and murder and covetousness and idolatry and homosexuality and so on and so forth, justified and forgiven from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. And yet when a Christian often struggles with peace of conscience and assurance, where do we go? Not to that knowledge, we go to law. How will I get rid of the guilt that's in the past? Obey. If I would obey more, then somehow my guilt's going to be removed. And you know that's never going to happen, but you do it. If I am more diligent, determined in my duties, then I will have rest and peace in my conscience, from my past lifestyle. And yet it never comes. Brother and sister in Jesus Christ, when you have such a case of conscience, the law shows no mercy. There's no mercy for this woman's adultery. There's no mercy for your particular sins. There is no mercy for your sinful lifestyle. There is no peace of conscience. There is no assurance of salvation through the law as law. But secondly, there is the law in the sentence of death. When the scribes and Pharisees come and they put this woman on trial and set her in the midst, what do they say? Verse 5. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned, put to death. And they're right. They're spot on. Leviticus 20 verse 10. This is what God says the law should do. To adultery. The man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 22, 22. If a man be found lying with a woman married to a husband, then they shall both of them die. Both the man that lay with the woman and the woman death. 
that's the only thing that can ever come through the law towards your sin. The condemnation of death. You have a guilty conscience. You lack peace. You lack assurance. The things of the past are haunting you. Is it like David in Psalm 25? Remember not, O Lord, forget my faults and sins of youth. Or maybe sins of a sinful lifestyle before you were a Christian. Or, or maybe it's actually sins you've committed while you were a Christian. And though you've repented, though you walk in the newness of life, and though you're consistent in faithful spiritual duties, yet the guilt and shame cannot go that way. The law will only condemn you and bring you death. You will sink and you will remain in the slower despond and despair and misery. Thirdly, the law of a convicted conscience. The scribes and the Pharisees are coming here to Jesus. The law says this woman should be stoned to death. What do you say? They said that to tempt him. If he says this woman shall be stoned, he makes himself a hypocrite because he received sinners and publicans. And at this time, the Roman government has taken away capital punishment from the Jews and say, I execute capital punishment alone. They can say, you usurp Caesar and accuse him of that. But on the contrary, if he says, this woman shall not be stoned, then he's going to be guilty of the heresy of antinomianism. You reject God's own law. And so Christ is silent. He stoops down to the ground. He takes his finger and he writes in the dust. And they come to him. What do you say? What's your answer? He's silent. And then after some period of time, he responds. He gives them the law. He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Now, people completely misunderstand this. They say, and can interpret it, since these people have sin, they're not allowed to judge. Therefore, only those who are without sin are ever to judge someone. That's just preposterous and foolish. That would contradict Romans 13, where governments and everyone who's a government or a judge are men and sinners. Or in the Old Testament, where it says that people are to judge righteous judgment. And in Matthew 7, when it says judge righteous judgment, no one ever judge anything. There'll be no presidents, no judges, nothing. It's not saying that. 
He's alluding here to the law of Deuteronomy 17. Where he's speaking about those who witness a sin. They themselves are to participate in the punishment of that sin. Deuteronomy 17.7 The hands of the witnesses shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterward the hands of all the people, so thou shalt put away from among you. Okay. You're saying this woman is guilty of sin. Which one of you without sin Go pick up that stone, throw it at her, and put it to death. He's not saying without sin in the absolute sense, but he's speaking of this sin in particular. All commentators agree on that. I haven't read anyone who disagree with that. You see, in the Old Testament, if you were partaking of a sin in any way, you were excluded from being a witness. If you were someone who contributed to that sin or you were able to prevent that sin but did not or you are presently walking in that sin, that disqualifies you from being a just, fair judge and witness. And Christ is saying, if you are completely exonerated from this woman's sin and you are so sure she is guilty, you pick up that stone and throw it at her. And what happens? They were convicted in their conscience and one by one walked away. We don't know exactly why, but you can put the pieces to summarize. Did you remember me reading Leviticus and Deuteronomy? If there's adultery, who's to be put to death? There's no misogyny here. The man and the woman is to be put to death. She was caught in the very act. Where's the man? Where's the adulterer? He's not here. And tell me, how were they caught in the very act of adultery? The only answer to these questions is one, it was planned and organised. Two, it was known there was a relationship going on and they could have prevented it and did not and wanted to catch him in the act just to get to Jesus. Or three, one of the scribes and Pharisees was the man who committed adultery. And they're using this woman as a pawn, as a tool to get at Jesus. One, two, three, we don't know what, but according to the law, it was one of them. And their conscience is convicted by Christ using the law, and they go away. Now, taking that principle of the law convicting the conscience, 
when Christians apply the law to the conscience, there will only ever be guilt. You know, the Bible, church history, reformed theology, when someone's looking for peace of conscience and assurance of grace, we say, examine yourselves. Because 2 Corinthians chapter 12 says, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. And Christians who have such a case of conscience tend to examine themselves only by the law. And so they bring the law upon their conscience and they can only ever see sin and guilt and shame and then conclude, I must never have been a Christian all along. Or they look at graces and evidences of Christian and life in their hearts and because they only look at through the scope of law, whatever faith they have, dead because they see sin. Whatever love for God or love for the word or love for people or love for worship, law condemned because there's sin in their love. So on and so forth and therefore despair and misery. But you notice I have quoted 2 Corinthians 12. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith, whether Christ be in you. You're always going to find sin within because we're sinners. The question is not do you see sin in yourself, but do you see Christ? Do you see Christ in you as as you see sin, you despair over it in the sense of uh, you sorrow for it and you hate it and you confess it to God for full forgiveness and you turn away from it seeking to live for Christ and his grace? Do you see a faith that has renounced all righteousness and depend on his righteousness alone? Do you see Christ in you with that sincere, though imperfect, love for God and his word and for fellowship and psalm singing and preaching and doctrine and truth and so on? And so when you bring law and only law to your conscience, you're only ever going to be convicted by sin and you're never going to find hope. You're never going to find assurance and you're never going to find peace of conscience. And so we need to learn, yes, the law should apply to discover that sin, but you should see Christ in you. It's easy to quote Robert Murray McShane, for every one look at self, take ten looks to Christ. But do it. That's a good balance. But see this woman. A grievous, public, shameful, wicked sin and no peace of conscience and no assurance of salvation through the law. But where, oh where will she find peace and assurance? The grace of Jesus Christ. You see in verse 10, These men 
have been found to be unjust, unfaithful witnesses. They're convicted in their conscience and they walk away. And here you have Jesus alone with the woman. Jesus alone, face to face with the woman. Or rather, this woman caught in adultery is face to face with Christ. In a certain sense, she should be trembling more than ever. Because in John chapter 5 it says, The Father judgeth no man, the Father has given all judgment to the Son. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And here's the problem. When Christ spoke to the scribes and Pharisees, He that is without sin, pick up that stone and throw it at her. And they all walked away. Christ the judge is without sin and he has every right to cast the stone at this woman. But why did Christ come? He came to show grace. John 1.17 For the law was given by Moses but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Grace, as we know, is not earned, it's not deserved, it's not merited, it's not cooperated with. Grace is absolutely free towards the undeserving. Grace is free towards the shameful, guilt-ridden, adulterous woman. And grace, my dear brother and sister, is free towards you. And where do we see grace? It begins with the writing on the ground. This passage of Christ writing on the ground has caused so much speculation. What did he write? Why did he write it? Ambrose and Augustine said he wrote Jeremiah 17, 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth. Where do they get that from? You can take any Bible verse in any of the scriptures and just say he wrote that and you can't prove either way. Don't think it's that. T.W. Manson, a, a scholar, I think of the late 19th century, maybe 20th century, I forget now, but anyway, the last hundred years or so. He said the Roman judges in their courts, they would write down the sentence first and then pronounce it. Well, why would Christ be doing something that happens in the Romans' courts. There's no evidence for it. I think if we understand John, we can find the best reason. 
If you know the Gospel of John, you know he uses Old Testament allusions without using verses. So, for example, John chapter 3, ye must be born again. Ye must be born by the Spirit in water. Now, where's that language coming from? Everyone's agreed. Ezekiel 36, where God says, I'll make a new covenant with my people and I'll put my spirit within them. I will cleanse them from all their sins. But yet the verse isn't quoted in John 3. But the picture of Ezekiel 36 is so evident in John 3. What's the picture here? They're at the temple. There's a woman caught in adultery. Jesus Christ is writing down. There is dust that is mentioned. And there's a woman being pronounced, forgiven, I do not condemn thee. Now put these five things, where in the Old Testament do we have them? The passage we read in Numbers chapter 5. This is the law of jealousies. This is why it's so important we read the Old Testament. We should read and study um, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. In this law of jealousies, there is a husband who is suspicious that his wife has committed adultery. And she's to be brought to the temple, the tabernacle at the time, before the priest. They are taking water and they're taking the dust of the tabernacle and mixing it. This dusty water is then to be drunk by the woman and put on oath. And the priest is to write down the curse that's to be upon her. If she's guilty of the sin, she is a curse before God, a curse before people, and she will be barren her life and not conceive child. But if she is not guilty, then this water and dust will do nothing to her. And she will conceive a child. And this written curse is washed away. What do we have here? We have Jesus Christ in the temple. We have a woman being charged with adultery, being brought to our great high priest. He is writing something down with his finger in the dust. And then he's pronouncing her not condemned, forgiven. I believe this is the best explanation of John chapter 8. And it shows grace. 
because this woman is guilty of sin. She is guilty of adultery. It says, go and sin no more, which is clear. See, sin the sin. Now go on living your life without sinning. Because Christ is the high priest whose sacrifice washes and cleanses of sin. As that high priest in Numbers 5 takes the curse and washes it away. Colossians chapter 2, 14 the blotting out of the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. So the high priest is saying to the woman caught in adultery, my blood cleanseth from every sin. Your shameful, wicked, guilt-ridden sin washed away. You're cleansed. And this is what Christ is saying to every single one of his people. No matter how sinful and wretched and guilty and shameful your past sins were. You want to talk about forgiving yourself? Do not forgive yourself because it's God you've sinned against. And God has sent Christ as your high priest and he's washed your sins away. Think of Manasseh and his wickedness. Think of Paul, the chief of sinners. Think of Augustine and the wickedness and debauchery. Think of Newton and his sin. Think of your sin and my sin. Where your sin abounds, the high priest's grace superabounds. And you're washed. And faith takes that which is unseen. Faith takes that which is completed in the past and grabs it and says, it's real for me. And Jesus Christ says, I do not condemn thee. John 3, 17. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Christ doesn't condemn you. He forgives you. Romans 8.1 There is no, no, no and forever no condemnation for them which are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.33 Who? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather that is risen again. And is even at the right hand of God. Who also maketh intercession for us. Who condemns you? Your flesh? Christ has died for you. Risen for you. And intercedes for you. If anyone has sinned, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. Who condemns you? Satan? Does Satan come to you? God's forgiven you. Martin Luther was a man who was tempted of the devil. The devil would come and convict him of all his sin. And Martin Luther wrote this. When the devil throws our sins up to us and declares we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. I admit that I deserve death and hell. 
what of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made a satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there I shall be also. And you need your faith to grasp hold of that. When you feel that shame, when that guilt has become a burden, you take your hands of faith and you do not look to that law which condemns. You look to that loving Saviour who freely, graciously condemns you not and justifies you and cleanses from every sin. And then there's the life of freedom afterwards. Go and sin no more. Again, a completely misinterpreted verse. Go and sin no more. If you have any sin whatsoever, you're condemned again. Absolutely not, because we'd be condemned the instant we actually were converted. It means do not go on living in sin. Again, every commentator I've ever read agree. There's no dispute here. Think of First John chapter 1. If anyone says, speaking to Christians, we have no sin, liar. That's what you're calling God. But what happens when you do sin? We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And then in 1 John chapter 3, it says that the people of God do not sin anymore. Doesn't mean sin. It means living in sin. We exposed that at a communion season ago. See, the Christian life should be one of freedom. Why is that? Because you're not under the law, you're under grace. Brother and sister, listen loud and clear. Open your ears, but open the ears of your conscience. You are not under law. You are under grace. That means the law as a covenant of works which condemns any sin, you're no longer under that. You're under grace now, which means Christ fulfilled the law on your behalf and you're released from its bondage and condemnation. Romans 7 is a wonderful picture. What happens when a wife or a husband loses their spouse to death. They are free from the law of their spouse to marry again. Paul says in Romans 7, that's just like your conversion. The law was your husband. And since you've died in Christ, you're now no longer under the law and you're never going to be under the law again. You're under Christ and under grace. And now you're under grace you say, how should I live my life? And Christ says, here's the law. Not as a covenant of works, but as a covenant of grace. And when you sin and you fail, my blood cleanses it all. But I give you my Holy Spirit, not as a spirit of bondage, but as a spirit of freedom. So that now you can follow me and obey me and 
no condemnation. That's why 1 John 5 says, how do you know you're born again? Because there is, the commandments are not grievous to me. Because I'm not under them as a covenant of works. In Galatians chapter 5, it says, the fruit of the Spirit is these, love, joy, peace. Against such there is no law. That is a law of covenant of works or a law of condemnation. The law cannot condemn you anymore. Remember our last action sermon? For the law, what it could not do, God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, condemned sin in the flesh. And now the law of death, the spirit of Christ has come to us and set us free. And so Christians should have a sense of peace and assurance and freedom. First Timothy 3, 9, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. Clean. Your conscience is clean. Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Christ has sprinkled it. And by faith, you are no longer to look to the law, but you look to Christ's grace to come and have that sense of peace and forgiveness and freedom. And this is the exclusive only way when your past sins or sinful life can ever be removed from shame and guilt in your conscience. And so, my friends, look to Jesus Christ. Look not to yourselves, look to, not, look not to your law, look not to your repentance, don't even look to your faith. Look unto Jesus. And when your faith grasps that, when your faith trusts in that, Chains are released. The darkness of the, the prison explodes and it's light from on high. And in your soul, there's peace of conscience and assurance of salvation. May we all be the woman caught in adultery. Christ says, I condemn thee not. Let us pray.